70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. I am Samuel Mukasedi Nsinga, a regular listener of KBS World Radio. I am sending this video message from a university campus in Nantes, France. Congratulations on KBS World Radio's 70 years of service. I believe you have been very successful in promoting Korea to the rest of the world. I also thank you for selecting me as one of your official monitors. I fell in love with Korea thanks to your channel. It was around 2012 or 2013 when I first caught a shortwave broadcast from KBS World Radio. I was only 9 or 10 years old. The fact that I could hear about Korea, the country of morning calm, in my home country of Cameroon, near the equator back then, is just amazing and beautiful. I wish the staff and the listeners of KBS World Radio all the best. See you. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday the 25th of October and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The United Nations Security Council convened another meeting to discuss the escalating conflict in Gaza, but the members once again failed to reach any agreement. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. President Yoon Song-yeol is now in Qatar after a successful trip to Saudi Arabia. We'll assess the outcomes of this Middle East tour with a regional expert for our in-depth day. And coming up on Korea Book Club, we'll be looking at Deborah Chung's latest work called On Suffering, a dystopian sci-fi novel about addiction, drugs, cults and murders. Let's begin today's Korea 24. Give the floor to the Secretary General, His Excellency Antonio Guterres. Excellencies, the situation in the Middle East is growing more dire by the hour. The war in Gaza is. The United Nations Security Council convened once again to discuss the ongoing war between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas. This comes as the combined death toll from the two sides since October 7th has reportedly surpassed. 7,000. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for an immediate ceasefire at the high-level meeting on Tuesday, criticizing the killings and abductions of civilians by Hamas. Let's hear what he had to say. With epic suffering, make the delivery of aid easier and safer, and facilitate the release of hostages, I reiterate my appeal for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Excellencies, Even in this moment of grave and immediate danger, 
Despite Guterres' calls, the meeting failed to produce any progress in dialogue as entrenchment was merely reinforced. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us our Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-young, hello. Hello, Tango. So the UN Security Council's open debate on the Israel-Hamas war on Tuesday revealed the deep chasm between Israel and Arab countries. Can you run us through some of the remarks by the Palestinians and Israel? Sure. Before we go into that, however, let's listen to the UN chief's remarks one more time. Nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets against civilian targets. All hostages must be treated humanely and released immediately and without conditions. And I respectfully note the presence among us of members of their families. Excellencies, it is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. As you just heard, Guterres criticized the killings and abductions of civilians by Hamas, but also said that the attacks didn't happen in a vacuum, apparently blaming Israel for the conflict. While the Palestinian Authority's foreign minister expressed support for Guterres' statement, his Israeli counterpart slammed the remarks and demanded the UN chief's resignation. Let's hear from Palestinian Authority Foreign Minister Riyad al-Maliki and Israel's Minister of Foreign Affairs Eli Cohen. The ongoing massacres being deliberately and systematically and savagely perpetrated by Israel, the occupying power, against the Palestinian civilian population under its illegal occupation must be stopped. The Security Council has a duty to stop them. The international community is obliged under international law to stop them. We give Palestinian Gaza till the last millimeter. There is no dispute in regard to the land of Gaza. How you can agree to a ceasefire with someone who swore to kill and destroy your own existence? How? We don't only have the right to defend ourselves. We have the duty to do so. As the meeting failed to make headway, South Korea's deputy permanent representative to the UN, Kim Sang-jin, called for a two-state solution to prevent further suffering while also urging sustained humanitarian support. Yes, meanwhile, we continue to brace for Israel's possible ground operation into Gaza as well. Let's shift gears now and turn to a situation that's developing here in South Korea. This is the latest on the lumpy skin disease in cattle. The government has announced a nationwide vaccination campaign to stall the spread of the virus. Can you tell us the latest? Yes, the government plans to vaccinate all 4,090,000 cattle nationwide by early November as the viral infection continues to spread at cattle farms in the country. To do that, the Central Disaster Management Headquarters said on Wednesday that it will purchase enough doses to be administered to 4 million animals by the end of the end of the month. The government already has a vaccine stockpile for half a million cattle, which it has been administering. Until all cattle are vaccinated, a standstill order will be in place for cattle in regions near the affected farms, while the shipment of manure will only be allowed after testing. Considering the three-week period for antibody formation, authorities expect the situation to stabilize within next month. 
Since the nation's first lumpy skin disease case was confirmed on Friday, the virus has been found at some 30 farms around the country. In other news, the monthly data on births nationwide was released on Wednesday, and unfortunately, it was another decline. Can you break down the numbers for us? According to Statistics Korea, 18,984 babies were born in August. That's down 12.8% from a year earlier, to post the lowest tally for the month since the state agency began compiling related data in 1981. The margin of decline was also the biggest in 15 years since the number of newborns fell 14.2% on year in August 2008. The crude birth rate, the annual number of live births per 1,000 people, stood at 4.4. Down 0.6 from a year ago to also hit a record low for August. On the other hand, the number of deaths rose 1.7% to 30,540. This has led to the 46th month of the population naturally declining. Let's turn now to the government's plan to expand the medical school enrolment quota.、Uh, the government plans to hold another round of talks with the Korea Medical Association on Thursday.、Uh, what can we expect from the talks? It's never easy, but we expect another tension filled session. In fact, a group of hardline doctors voiced strong opposition to the government's plan in a news conference on Wednesday. The group, including Seoul Medical Association President Park Myung ha, said in the news conference that the government's plan is clearly an act of populism that endangers the basis of the nation's medical service. It called on an existing consultative body on medical issues to immediately stop discussions on expanding the quota and demanded forming another consultative body to discuss the issue from square one. Through the existing panel, the Health Ministry and the KMA held 14 rounds of talks since January on expanding the enrollment quota. And finally, a US think tank assessed that North Korea has likely delivered more than one month's worth of shells to Russia in its war against Ukraine. Can you tell us more? Yes, according to Radio Free Asia on Tuesday, the Institute for the Study of War drew up a report that said North may, the North may have provided 300,000 to 500,000 shells. The estimate is based on an assumption that each of around 1,000 containers transported from the North to Russia, as recently revealed by the White House, carried 300,000 to 500,000 shells. The report said Pyongyang's provision could last about a month, citing daily consumption of up to some 10,000 shells a day by the Russian military. It also says that the total from the imported rounds and domestically manufactured Russian ones provides Moscow with sufficient firepower next year. We're going to leave it there for our news briefing today. Ing Young, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. Today is day five of President Yoon Sung Yeol's six day trip to the Middle East. He's now in Qatar after visiting Saudi Arabia, and he's become the first South Korean president to make state visits to both countries. While the main focus is strengthening economic cooperation, security ties have also been a significant topic of discussion, especially amid heightened tensions in the region due to the war between Israel and Hamas. To discuss the expected outcomes from the trip in terms of economy, security, and other wider geopolitical、uh, situation, we have joining us on the line now Professor Park Hyun-do from the Sogang Euro Mina Institute at Sogang University. Professor Park, hello. It's、uh, great to have you back on the show today. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. 
Okay, let's begin with assessing the economic outcomes first, Professor. Can you outline for us the agreements that have been reached between Korea and the two countries, both uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar? As a matter of fact, Saudi Arabia and Qatar made great efforts to uh, make a good relationship with Korea on almost all economic uh, fields. For example, from the uh, actually, the, those countries are trying to diversify their industries, and the, they think that Korea is the best partner for diversifying their economies because Korea uh, actually shows to the world that very uh, very hardworking and also the from the changing from the very poorest country in the world to the prospering uh, country in modern times. So the, they believe that they can learn a lot from the Korea. So and also the, we have also we have interest in, in those countries, particularly with the Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar. These two countries are leading countries, actually leading economy in the Middle East. And so we are, the, those countries can provide a lot of op- economic opportunities to our company, uh, particularly the from the not only the energy energy sectors, but also the biotechnology and also the clean energy. Well, it is, it is actually useless to name all of them. I mean, the, we have a, uh, the whole, a lot of good relations with the, between these two countries, and, and we achieved a wonderful success this time. Right. With Saudi Arabia, South Korea signed over uh, some 50 deals and uh, MOUs, which were said to be worth around 15.6 billion uh, US dollars. And we got word today as well that South Korea and Qatar uh, made some big deals as well, uh, building agreements to build uh, LNG carriers worth 5 trillion won, which is about 3.9 billion US dollars, and also uh, to uh, build ships as well uh, with contracts worth 5 trillion won. Once again, that's 3.9 billion US dollars. So these are uh, very some very big deals. Professor, what do you... Uh, make of the agreements? How significant are they? You see, the, the, ten, is it, the number is tantalizing. It's really tantalizing. I mean, it's really surprising numbers and the, uh, the achievements. Uh, this time, you know, the, right now, uh, nothing good is happening in the region. And also security-wise, very dangerous. But nevertheless, the, the three countries, Korea and Saudi Arabia and Qatar, made a great efforts uh, to uh, to make a mutual good relations relationship and for the future. And these countries, as I told you, these two countries are trying to diversify their economies. And Korea want to become a great partner in helping them to achieve uh, the new vision in the mid- new vision in for the economy and also security-wise too. And also the Korea is uh, the uh, Korea shows shows to these countries and we are korea is a very reliable partner for coming together uh working together on the the path of prosperity i mean the 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 number itself shows everything i mean i'm i'm really surprised and Mm. and the number is really tantalizing Uh, what have you made of president yun's his approach to both uh, dealing with both these countries, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. He especially seems to have had quite a rapport with the Saudi crown prince. Uh, this uh, crown prince 
uh, bin Salman made a surprise visit to the state guest house where President Yoon was staying on Tuesday and personally drove him to an investment forum where he watched Yoon's speech. And uh, yes, President Yoon, we also uh, know that he's met with the Qatari emir, uh, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, as well. What do you make of uh, his approach to dealing with these two countries and their leaders? You see, the, uh, those two royal highnesses, uh, they're really friendly, and they showed really great uh, friendly gestures to Korea. I mean, the, uh, they are really friendly to Korea, and they believe that Korea will become a great partner in, the, or again, the diversifying the economies. Otherwise, actually, they do not have to show that, that kind of the, the friendship. And this is a state visit. And the state visit means that they needed us. They needed South Korea. They need South Korea as much as we, we need them. So this relationship, particularly the, in times of the highly the difficult situation, I mean, the, what is going on in Palestine, mm. and particularly the war between Hamas and Israel, is shocking in the world. And also we are worried about the security uh, of the security and safety of the region. But nevertheless, this, the, without anything, and uh, without any worries about the, the possibility of any danger, mm. uh, three countries actually they made a great, great efforts and the, to, uh, showing to the world that the, we share together the vision and the future and the prosperity. Right, you've mentioned security. Uh, what do you make of the discourse shared with respect to security? Uh, what stood out to you on this front? As a matter of fact, actually, also the, we made a great effort to uh, the, have a good business in mean, the defense ministry and uh, defense industry. Uh, defense industry is sometimes very difficult to actually talk, uh, talk about because actually the, it is sometimes it, it tarnishes the country's image. For example, Korea is exporting a lot of the weapons to other countries. It doesn't make, it doesn't sound very good. But nevertheless, the, the Qatar and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, need to uh, modernize their uh, the military. In that sense, we can help them, and also uh, in so doing, we can actually the uh, contribute to the prosperity and also security of the region. That's what I can say about the defense industry. I mean, the death, this is very delicate issues. Mm. Uh, regarding the Hamas-Israel war. In the joint statement between President Yun and the Saudi Crown Prince bin Salman, the two leaders said that they reject the targeting of civilians in the ongoing conflict and that they will be providing, uh, they will work towards providing humanitarian assistance to uh, civilian victims. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Saudi Crown Prince in recent weeks has said that Saudi stands by Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the US, Korea's closest ally, has been stressing its support towards Israel. Mm -hmm. So how do you assess Yun's efforts in dealing with the situation and trying to find a middle ground? As a matter of fact, the Korean government position is very clear and the, the, very clear in terms of the security and also Palestinian issues. Korean government does not want to get involved in any conflict, but we are very good at the providing humanitarian assistance to uh, those people who suffer from any danger or any atrocities. So the Korean, Korean government has been persistently showing to the world that as a democratic country, 
we share the same vision of democracy and human rights. As a, as a great student of democracy and human rights, uh, the, the Republic of Korea uh, would set a good example in providing humanitarian aid to the people who suffer from uh, the war and the, also the conflict. And, and this, this visit right. shows to the world that we are, we are actually the, we do not stop becoming a, a good student of democracy right. in providing humanitarian assistance. Right, but broadening the perspective a bit further, another key variable in the equation is, of course, Iran. How do you see South Korea-Iran relations in this particular context of the Israel-Hamas war as well? Because Iran might put pressure on uh, countries like South Korea uh, in their uh, in their support of uh, the of uh, the Palestinian people. We don't have to side. We don't have to take any side with any other country. Simply, we have to uh, set the example that we uh, we would love to provide humanitarian assistance, mm. no matter who they are, no matter uh, the no matter who the civilians are. We would love to provide, as long as the the we, our country is keeping the uh, the standard of justice and human rights, we will stop. Will stop providing any humanitarian assistance to. Uh, those innocent civilians in Palestine, and also the, the Israel, too. Okay, well, broadly, uh, South Korea's, uh, the South Korean president's visit to uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar has been seen uh, so far as a success. But moving, uh, but looking ahead now, what should South Korea's next steps be for further mutual fruition uh, with the Middle East? Why is it important for Korea to continue uh, to develop these ties as well? Well, I just told you, I mean, diversification. Diversification of the industry is the most important, actually, the uh, task that those countries are trying to achieve. And the, as I told you many times, and also the, I always repeat and over and over again, Korea will become a great partner for those countries to become uh, the, the to become diversified in their industries. And also, the, I would like to point out that this visit uh, also facilitated the image of the the young Korea, meaning that uh, the our government is the open, open uh, the arms wide to talk to young people in those countries, like uh, Qatari young people and Saudi young people, and uh, that is the great step, the great step actually the, for us to uh, develop the further relationship uh, between Korea and these two countries, because the the. The future lies in the new generation, and in a sense, it is wonderful to see our our president actually be having a great conversation with the Saudi young people and Qatari young people, and that would be that would pave the new generation and new future uh, amongst the countries. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for our in-depth today. We've been speaking to Professor Park Hyun-do from the Sogang Euro Mina Institute at Sogang University. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. 
The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 20.34 points, or 0.85% on Wednesday, to close at 2,363.17. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, dropping 14.02 points, or 1.79%, to close at 770.84. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 6.61 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,349.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We turn now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our news editor, Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you again, jang OK, a y what do you have for us first today? October 25th is Tokyo Day here in Korea. According to Hong Sang-gun, a historian and researcher at the Northeast Asian History Foundation, this is when the Korean Empire Ordinance No. 41 designated Ulleung at the time as a county that belongs to Gangwon province and Tokyo as being within Ulleung County in 1900. However, Japan repeatedly lays claims to the islets to this day, which is why various events are held to mark this important date. Right, so this is an important day celebrating Korea's easternmost islets. Can you give us a brief history of how Tokyo Day became an annual event? Sure. It was initially designated by the civilian organization Tokyo Guardian in the year 2000. There was even a petition campaign to establish Tokyo Day as a national holiday. In 2005, Japan's Shimane prefectural government officially declared February 22nd Takeshima Day to demonstrate its sovereignty over the islets. On August 27, 2008, a bill to establish Tokyo Day as a national holiday was submitted to the National Assembly. Then in 2010, related organizations declared it a national event to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the loss of Korea's sovereignty following Japan's annexation. Right, so both Korea and Japan have designated days to celebrate their claims over the islets, usually marked by uh, special events. What's taking place this year for Tokyo Day? Well, some 123 people in Daegu held a flash mob. Schools have students taking part in activities, including painting competitions to celebrate, celebrate the day as usual. Various artists and cultural figures from around the nation are eager and doing their part to promote Tokyo too. And one that stands out is Seo Gyeong-duk, a professor at Songshin Women's University and social activist. This time, he collaborated with renowned TV producer Na Young-suk, as he has done before in the past, to create and upload a video on YouTube on Wednesday about how Japan hunted Tokyo Bay sea lions from 1903 to 1941. In 1904 alone, around 3,200 are known to have been killed. The last surviving sea lion in Tokyo was found in 1976, with no further reports made since, according to historic data. The video, which incorporates animation and is narrated by Na, is meant to show the brutality of the Japanese forces during colonial rule and detail facts, as well as the truth about the history of Tokyo. Right. And many Korean people also try to visit the islets as well, right, despite it being a difficult journey. Yes, entry to Tokyo is only permitted between March and October due to freezing winter conditions with ferocious winds. And even during the seven-month window, only about 60 days have ideal conditions for boats to reach the islets. More accurate weather forecasts are helping to prevent cases of visitors having to turn away or make U-turn last minute these days. Yes, this is another reminder that although relations between Seoul and Tokyo have improved over the last couple of years, many issues like Tokyo remain unresolved. 
Okay, let's continue on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Halloween is around the corner, and in Korea, not many people are expected to celebrate it uh, because last year during the festivities in Itaewon, lives were lost in a tragic crowd crush. Police are expected to be dispatched in greater numbers in areas thought to be crowded this weekend so that a similar tragedy doesn't occur. What's concerning, however, is a recent trend of police uniforms becoming a popular Halloween costume. Yes, this is an unfortunate story when the focus should be on remembering the 159 lives that were lost that fateful night last year. But the rise in sales of police costumes is a concern. And we're not just talking about particular companies or online shops selling them. These are reports coming in regarding people-to-people sales or exchanges, right? Right. According to a major online marketplace that allows individuals to buy, sell, and trade new and used items, there's been a growing number of police uniforms being sold and bought. Uh, looking at some uh, that, that are put for sale more than a week ago, they were selling for as low as under 10,001 or slightly above $7. With rising demand, some are even selling for as high as 30,001 nowadays. Mm. The company said on Thursday it is heightening, monitoring, and devising both technical and legal measures to prevent such sales. Yes, it's a concern because buying and wearing such costumes can be dangerous even for a number of reasons. Yes, there can be a great confusion and chaos if multiple number of civilians dressed as police are mixed with real police officers during emergency situations. Plus, it's illegal for someone that is not an officer to possess or wear such uniforms or costumes that resemble them. Offenders can be slapped with a prison sentence of up to six months, Sellers of such items can be jailed up to a year or be fined up to 10 million won. That's around 7,000 U.S. dollars. Users of the online market service are advised to refrain from making such sales or purchases and to file a report to the company if they witness such activities. Yes, in the meantime, hopefully the buyers are not planning to cause any trouble and that we don't see any related incidents during the Halloween period. Let's continue on to our last story now. What else has been trending today? K-pop girl group Stacey turned heads on stage while performing in Dallas as part of their U.S. tour last week. That's not very unusual, but this time it was for a different reason. The six members thought they were wearing Texas Rangers uniform in support of the World Series-bound baseball team in the U.S., but what they had on was the uniforms of Glasgow Rangers, a football team of the Scottish Premier League. Yes, this is what we call nowadays a facepalm moment, so a very unfortunate mix-up. But what made it all the more heartbreaking was the fact that the Glasgow Rangers shirts that they were wearing were apparently ones from the 90s, the 1990s, which I imagine would be quite difficult to find. So they went through all that effort, but it turns out they were wearing the shirts of the wrong team. How have fans of both uh, sports team reacted to this blunder? Well, first of all, when it comes to... uh... Uh, sports team memorabilia and jerseys. There are so many of them, even mm. for a single team. So it can be confusing even for uh, 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 dedicated sports fans because right. they have these throwback jerseys, retro jerseys, special commemorative editions. So it can get <laughs> confusing when you just have the name Rangers when there are so many different Rangers. I believe there's one in the NHL, the Hockey League as well. So overall, it's being seen as a lighthearted mistake, thankfully. According to recent online posts, many Glasgow Rangers fans took notice 
and some have become fans of Stacy after that. Uh, thankfully, Texas Rangers fans mostly reacted with amusement rather than anger, mm. uh, according to a lot of posts online. An American journalist pointed out that in the group's previous shows, the girls successfully got the right jerseys that corresponded to the location of the concerts, with two teams from each region being represented by three members each. So a lot of put, thought is put into this, and it's a grueling process. Right. On October 11th, in Brooklyn, members wore the Yankees and Mets baseball jerseys. In Chicago, in Chicago, two days later, they wore the Bears football jerseys and the Bulls basketball jerseys. Well, it is nice that they wear shirts of local teams when they perform there. But as long as they wear the correct ones, of course, has the group's agency made any comment regarding the mistake? Well, the representatives for Stacy did not respond to a request for a comment at this point. But <laughs> perhaps the girls and their PR team should reach out to mega Texas Rangers fans like George W. Bush or to devoted Glasgow Rangers fans such as Chef Gordon Ramsay. Indeed. It's uh, nothing to get too embarrassed about. As you said, it was just an honest mistake. And most people will be understanding. But yes, perhaps next time, check with a local as well. OK, that's where we wrap it up for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Wednesday, which means it's time now for Korea Book Club, where we delve into the world of Korean literature and books through works available in translation and beyond. Joining us now is Beth Uni Hong, which means it's our special monthly edition of the club, where we discover more recent bestsellers or notable works in Korea, uh, which have not yet been translated, so we get a better sense of the current literary scene today. Beth, hello. It's great to see you again. Hi, Chang'o. Good to see you. Okay, so what do you have for us this month? Since it's Halloween this month, I've brought with me the dystopian sci-fi novel Gotong'e Kwanayo, or On Suffering by Bora Chung, published by Dasan Books in August of this year. Yes, okay. Bora Chung, will, uh, she'll be familiar for many listeners of this program and beyond, I'm sure, as she has been a guest here on Korea 24 to talk about her global bestseller, Cursed Bunny, of course, whose translation by Anton Her was nominated for the International Booker Prize last year. That's right. And I've also had the pleasure of interviewing Bora for the books podcast at the Korea Herald, where she actually dropped a teaser for this book. So I was super excited to dive into this latest one. Yeah, so people familiar with Cursed Bunny will know that her dark and sharply observed works are perhaps fitting for Halloween. So tell us about this book, then. It's a uh, it's got quite a heavy title. Yeah, so in this novel, there's a major pharmaceutical company that has developed a non-addictive opioid that has effectively eliminated physical pain. And against this new pain-free normal rises a religious cult that claims the path to spiritual salvation is through pain and suffering. And at the heart of this are two main characters, Kyung, the daughter of the pharmaceutical company's founders, and Tae, a young man who grew up in the cult. Tay goes to prison for setting off a bomb via a drone at the pharmaceutical company headquarters, killing Kyung's parents. Right, so that's the setup. But I understand that the story then picks up 12 years after the bombing uh, with the mysterious murders of cult members. 
That's right. The plot thickens. So this is a central mystery that drives this novel. Mm. Through six parts, the whole picture is gradually revealed piece by piece as we learn more about the characters and how their lives intersect. Readers will notice that at the very beginning of this book, there's a list and brief description of the 12 characters who all have one-syllable names that have a corresponding Hanja character. So um, this actually comes in quite handy later on because the storylines become more and more, but not too intricate. Okay, sure. So there's a lot going on in this book then. Uh, And I understand it covers a lot of hot-button issues as well. The first of which we can talk about is uh, domestic violence, especially Against women, right? Yes. Uh, we find out that Tae's mother, uh, Hong, actually joined the cult because she had nowhere else to go after li- leaving her abusive partner. And this unfortunately ends terribly for the family as she is forcibly separated from her two sons, Tae and his older brother, Han, and eventually dies by the very same drug whose formula she smuggles from the pharmaceutical company on behalf of the cult. And in the afterword to the book, the author Bo Chung talks about how the lack of a social safety net for women can lead to such dangerous situations and is a mirror onto contemporary Korean society. That brings us to another salient social issue in this novel, religious cults. So uh, cults in South Korea have gotten a renewed interest recently thanks to the documentary series, which was called uh, In the Name of God on Netflix, earlier this year. That caused quite a stir. That's right. Yeah, it shocked the country. Mm. And um, Bora mentions in the afterword that she did a very deep dive into Korean religious cults for this novel, which um, she does not give a name to, actually. She simply calls it Kyodan or The Order. And what's interesting is that she draws parallels between these cults and Korean society as a whole, in which privileged elites exploit people's widespread fear of poverty and social irrelevance, the same way that cult leaders exploit their followers' deepest fears. Right, by not giving it a name and simply calling it the order, I think, makes it sound even more ominous. Uh, I also understand the novel uh, contains some LGBT elements as well. Can you tell us more about that as well? Yeah. um, So shortly after Kyung becomes the sole heir to the pharmaceutical company after her parents' death, she proposes a marriage of convenience to a young woman on the company's legal team named Hyun. So they go on to develop a loving bond and even have a child together through genetically engineered IVF. Those who follow Korean news would know that, in fact, the first openly lesbian couple had their first child earlier this year to Mm. a flurry of media coverage and not entirely positive public reaction. Mm. So um, and then there's also the main police detective investigating the serial murder case um, who is named Rune. And we find out eventually that Rune is actually an openly transgender man. This called into my mind Korea's first openly transgender soldier, Pyeon Hee-soo, who was discharged the year before her tragic suicide death in 2021. And it uh, remains an open question how long it will take for Korea's patriarchal military and police cultures to change. Indeed. So there are a lot of issues here that will strike a chord with a lot of people at the moment. A lot of issues have been in the news and so forth. Uh, Also, there are two recurring words throughout the book, pain or suffering. Uh, Indeed, it's in the title as well, on suffering. What kind of pain or suffering do the characters go through? What are we talking about here? Well, we see that both Kyung and Tae have incredibly painful childhoods. Kyung is a victim of horrific sexual abuse from her father, as well as a human lab rat for pharmaceutical experiments, which leave her with lifelong physical and mental scars. 
And meanwhile, Tae is also subjected to horrific physical and psychological abuse by the cult due to its twisted ideology about pain and salvation. And finally, there's the cult follower, Uk, who, like Kyung and Tae, experiences um, intense physical pain at some point in his life and then becomes delusional in the search for a greater meaning to redeem it. Right. So as I said, this is another grim but fascinating book by Bora Chung. She certainly hasn't disappointed on that area. Uh, What did you make of it all? What were some key takeaways or insights you uh, gained from this novel, do you think? So I was particularly moved by Kyung because um, she eventually comes to trust in her own ability to move on from her traumatic and painful past. And she chooses to give up seeking people who can understand her pain because everyone's experience with pain and suffering is subjective and just build a loving future with her partner, Hyun. I think this message of love and hope triumphing over pain is what we need most right now in a world that's extremely divided over conspiracy theories, distrust of institutions, and record levels of social isolation worldwide. And I just want to add that I feel given the tight pacing and cinematic style of this narrative, I really wouldn't be surprised if this was adapted into a TV series or film. Mm. Uh, You mentioned that there's an afterword by Chung as well. I understand that she mentions how she was inspired to write this book after attending a panel discussion on the opioid epidemic in the United States. So it's not just issues relevant to Korea, but she's also touching on issues that affect uh, other countries as well. Yeah. um, In both her afterword and in a recent interview, she talked about how the initial inspiration for this book was from a panel that she attended in San Jose, California, about the roots of the opioid epidemic in the U.S. And um, coming from Canada personally, where opioid-related deaths have claimed more than 30,000 lives since 2016, as of February this year, it's Mm. definitely an issue that hits close to home for me. And in fact, it's become a full-blown public health crisis, actually, in my home province of British Columbia. Um, So we're seeing more and more headlines about growing opioid use in Korea as well, especially among younger people who abuse fentanyl patches and psychotropic diet medications. Indeed, this is a novel that touches on a multiplicity of relevant social and uh, philosophical issues that uh, I think will be with us for years to come as well. I think this would be a work that resonates powerful with an international audience as well. So hopefully uh, a translation is forthcoming soon. Right, we'll wrap it up there, Beth. It's uh, been great to have you with us as always. Take care and we'll catch up with you next month. Thank you. See you next month. Hello, my name is Anna Yates Liu, Assistant Professor from the Department of Korean Music at Seoul National University. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've now come to Morning Edition Preview, our closing segment, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald, who we thank for providing us with their early editions to make this segment possible. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. 
Okay, so what's the first article from tomorrow's newspapers that has caught your eye? Well, it's about an interesting exhibition that is taking place at the National Folk Museum of Korea. Kim Hyun's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald explains that masks from Korea, Japan, and China are on display at the museum as part of a special exhibition called Everyday Use of Masks: The Ideal of Mask Play. Okay, so when we say masks, of course, don't mean masks like COVID nineteen masks, <laughs> right. or medical masks. We sure. are talking, I think, more about traditional masks used in exactly. plays and performances and whatnot. So, can you walk us through this exhibition then? What type of masks are on display? So, there are a total of one hundred and ninety-five traditional masks, one hundred and two from Korea, forty-eight from Japan, and forty-five from China. The exhibition is being held to show the distinctive features that separate the three countries, and there are pictures involved. So yeah, um, you'll be able to get an idea of what I mean. But let me go through some of the masks that visitors can see. Mm. So the first one is the most well-known, I would say, and that is the lion mask. You may see, you may have seen these at festivals or even on TV. But what is cool to see is how different each country's version of the lion mask is. Right, they are some of the masks that feature in the photographs, and you get a clear image of how they slightly resemble each other, but are also totally different at the same time. <laughs> It's really interesting. Interesting, yes. And then there is a Maltugi mask. Uh, this was used during performances in the early 20th century to portray a servant character. I looked at the picture and it kind of resembles Gargamel, the villain from the Smurfs, to me. <laughs> sure, okay, but I'm guessing it doesn't have anything to do with the uh, Smurfs <laughs> right. character. Uh, but yes, it is interesting to see, uh, especially with, as you said, the lion mask. How each country represents it slightly differently, but right. perhaps you can see the line that connects all of them mm. uh, because they are, of course, all neighboring countries. Right. Uh, what other notable things does the exhibition show? Well, the exhibition also takes a look at how people perform with. Traditional masks in each country. So in Korea, there's a mask play called Talnori. The article mentions that usually characters argue with each other, and by the end, they find ways to reconcile. <laughs> the performances often involve audience members as well. In China, there's Nuo Opera. This is set on a stage and revolves around an important historical character and their difficult lives. And Japan has Kagura. This is different compared to the other two because this is more about praying to the gods. It's kind of like a ritual. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting to see how the three countries use masks for traditional performances, but it's also interesting to see how they differ from each other. Yes, it sounds like there are many things that uh, visitors can learn by visiting this exhibition. So, uh, how long does this exhibition run on for? So it opened on Tuesday, and it will be held until March third next year. And actually, this museum is still on the list of things of places I want to go to. So maybe I can do it to visit this as well. Sure, and it's open until March next year. Yes. So there's plenty of time to check it out exactly. as well. Okay, let's uh, move on to our second article. What else have you found in tomorrow's newspapers? So yesterday we talked about how Busan has been seeing global popularity and is becoming a popular place for tourists. Well, the port city is not alone. Dong Sunhua's article in the culture section of the Korea Times explains that three villages in the country have been included on the United Nations World Tourism Organization's World's Best Tourism Villages list. <laughs> okay, so uh, before we find out which villages made the list, can you tell us? 
more about it. The United Nations World Tourism, what are nations, world's <laughs> best tourism villages list. Try saying that three times fast. <laughs> <laughs> but yet the annual list was launched in 2021. So that rural areas and villages are able to receive the recognition they deserve. It's nice to see because whenever I see top 10 lists, they're usually about capital cities or the countries themselves. But yet the villages are chosen with nine criteria in mind, such as environmental sustainability, infrastructure and health, safety and security. This year, there were over 250 applications, but only 54 villages were chosen. Mm, Okay, including three from Korea, as you said. So which Korean sites were chosen then in the end? First is Dongbaek village on Jeju Island. It's most known for producing local products like oil and soap, and they are made from a flower called camellia. I didn't know this, but Dongbaek is the flower's Korean name. Mm. Uh, The second village is also on Jeju Island, and it is Sehwa village. It's been promoting Hinyo culture. For our listeners who may not know this, they are the female divers that you can spot if you travel to the island. And then there is Mosan Village in Hwasan County. The article mentions that it was designated as the UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2000. And it is the best place for those who are interested in learning about the Bronze Age. Well, it's interesting that these villages have been chosen. They sound like uh, great selections uh, as well. And it's uh, good to see villages getting the kind of recognition, uh, as you mentioned earlier as well. Right. Uh, that's where we're going to leave it for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Richard. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope all our listeners have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Don't even think about checking that message or texting back. Did you know it only takes three seconds after a driver's attention has been diverted from the road for a crash to occur? Texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than driving under the influence of alcohol. Sending or reading a text message causes drivers, on average, to take their eyes off the road for five seconds. When driving at 80 kilometers per hour, that means that drivers travel approximately the length of a football field with their eyes closed. At KBS World Radio, we value our listeners' safety and well-being. If you're listening to our programs while driving via your mobile device, please hit play before you set off on your journey. If you receive a message or a call while driving, either use a hands-free Bluetooth device to respond or wait until you've arrived at your destination. You're not just putting your life at risk. Distracted driving accounts for approximately 25% of all motor vehicle crash fatalities. Arrive alive. KBS World Radio.